Hi, Internet, and welcome to episode three of Open Paren. I am here with Miriam Posner, who is the Digital Humanities Program Coordinator at UCLA and is also on the Executive Council of Computing and the Humanities. So we get to talk about all kinds of digital humanities stuff today because I'm not just gonna talk to librarians, I'm gonna talk to people who are near libraries doing super relevant things, um, which I'll get to in a moment. But first I wanna ask you uh, the question that they ask at the beginning of my new favorite podcast, Another Round, which is, what do you do and why? Oh, what do I do? Um, so, I work at UCLA, obviously, as you said, and um, I think, like, the main way I would describe my job is that um, I teach. So, I, I teach um, in our undergraduate minor and graduate certificate. Um, and then the other big part of my job is keeping the trains running on time for our program, <laughs> um, just making sure that... Um, we're able to offer the right classes at the right time. And, you know, um, we have about, probably about 70 minors and another couple dozen grad students now. So uh, I spend a lot of time just advising them um, and um, trying to assemble resources for them at mm -hmm. UCLA. Yeah, I saw on the website that you have something like 35 faculty members, which is kind of, epic size for a, a, a digital humanities program. And I was wondering, how did UCLA get to have this large of a program? You know, I think it was really an organic process um, that started a long time before I got, I got here. Um, you, uh, DH, I think, happens in different ways at different institutions. Um, and at UCLA, it's been primarily faculty driven, um, which, which has a lot of implications for like administrative structure and stuff like that. Um, but I think that as faculty got interested in it and built projects um, and recruited other faculty who work in similar areas um, over time, um, and this has been like, you know, 20 years, um, the expertise has accrued. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I noticed talking to digital humanities people is that if you ask 10 of them what digital humanities is, you get at least 15 answers, possibly mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm assuming with that interdisciplinary of a faculty, you have a lot of potential answers to the question of what is digital humanities. So I'm curious as to your answer. Yeah, well, my answer is actually super simple. Um, I like to say that it's the use of digital tools to explore humanities questions. Um, and so I think that leaves a lot of latitude um, for an individual researcher to decide, you know, what the most meaningful way to do that is. But I, I do emphasize explore humanities questions and not answer because you know, something that I think is fundamental to the humanities is this notion that there is no concrete and unequivocal answer to any given question. Um, that's just not the point of what we do. So, um, so in my mind, that, that simple definition um, emphasizes that um, we're not assembling data to come to an undisputable conclusion the way one might do in a different field, but we are um, 
assembling data and, and running analyses on it to sort of suggest new interpretations. Mm -hmm. Can you describe some of the interesting explorations that are going on in your neck of the woods? Yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Um, in fact, a big you know, challenge in my job is just keeping track of it um, because um, because people are just so active. But um, I just sat in on a presentation from Tim Tangerlini, who's in our Scandinavian section here at UCLA. Um, and also interestingly in um, Korean language. Um, so he, he is, those are his two languages that he works on. Um, uh, who, and he works with Pete Broadwell, who is um, a programmer based in, in the library here at UCLA. Um, and Tim's specialty is folklore, um, particularly um, Scandinavian folklore. And so he and uh, Pete have developed something that they call Elf Yelp um, <laughs> that allows you to um, associate or, or allows the researchers to associate locations with particular um, uh, folk tales from Scandinavian history um, using this kind of um, location-specific topic modeling process. So, so you can actually trace the elves to their particular locations uh, <laughs> in, the, in the countryside, which is kind of cool. It's, it's a companion to Witch Hunter, which is their other... Um, exploration of, of folktales with computational methods. So are these real world locations or some of them not or both? These are real world locations. Um, so as I understand it, um, this technique, which is called um, latent geographical topic analysis, LGTA, um, looks for kind of symptoms of locations within texts and then um, refines those locations so that it can actually map them specifically. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's, it's online and I should, I'll send you the link. Excellent, because um, I would love to have that link available. Really cool, yeah. Look at. It has a complicated URL, but it's really cool. <laughs> it will not be complicated to click on, so that's, <laughs> that's the important part. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, so that's, you know, so that's one thing. There's also a lot of activity here around um, historical reconstruction of 3D objects and buildings. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of um, digital archaeologists here who, uh, uh, who have assembled quite a lot of data about historical structures. And so it's been sort of a natural um, extension of that work to try to recreate those structures in 3D space mm -hmm. and then um, experiment with um, things like uh, if, if a procession was taking place in, in the ancient Roman forum, you know, how much space would the, um, would, would, the, would the people actually have to navigate between buildings, things mm -hmm. like that, that are, that are usefully answered with 3D models. Hmm. I find myself kind of reminded of the New York Public Library's mapping stuff with their historical maps and their space-time. Huh. Yeah, they do great work at NYPL, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, in both cases, um, you know, there's, there's a tension between what the data can tell us and, and what we want to know about the past. Mm -hmm. And so part of 
any kind of digital humanities methodology is developing some kind of vocabulary to describe that gap between mm -hmm. what we know and what we can uh, and, and, and what we want to know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of um, people interested in 3D modeling at UCLA have been interested in modeling absence or ambiguity in, in historical models, for example. Yeah, so that's something I'm really curious about because I, I find myself thinking a lot about the limitations in metadata um, from a diversity perspective, right? Because I think you touched on this some in, in a blog post you wrote on the unrealized potential of the digital humanities where you're talking about how our, our vocabulary for describing time or race may not actually match um, the, the descriptions that participants would use to describe their own experiences of time or their own race or what have you. Um, but when you're doing a computational system, you, you have to have something that's specific enough that you can, can taxonomize or uh, build linked data around it or something. And so I, I, I found myself really interested in, in how, do you, how do you locate these limitations in your metadata and what can you do to fill them in or get around them or at least be honest about what you've got going on. So I'm curious what sort of techniques you found yourself or people in your unit using to deal with, with ways that metadata is not only limited, but is limited in ways that, that make it maybe not tell the story that the participants would have understood. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think it is kind of like, it's an active question. I don't think it's a question that anyone mm -hmm. really has an answer to. Um, but one thing that I've been doing with my students um, is practicing describing what the data actually tells us, you know, versus uh, what it's tempting to say that it tells us. So, um, you know, just to take one example, um, we have, we're working right now with, um, a set of data about shipwrecks off the coast of New Jersey. Um, it's a really cool data set um, and the students are having a lot of fun with it. Um, but one thing we have to keep reminding ourselves is that um, this is not a representation of the shipwrecks themselves, um, which could have been interpreted and experienced in a lot of different ways. It's uh, a data set representing, you know, A, those shipwrecks that were recorded and published and whose accounts were published in the newspaper and whom someone was able to locate and then um, distill into structured data. Um, you know, and, and that structured data, um, we've been practicing reminding ourselves, um, is always gathered with a particular purpose in mind. Um, and that purpose may not to be ex to express the experience of the people, for example, who were caught in the shipwrecks, um, but to understand maybe it's geographic um, uh, components. So, so just reminding yourself, you know, what the data actually can tell you about and what the data can't tell you about is a really important exercise, just as a first step. Um, um, and then, you know, we've been doing a lot of reading about, you know, ontologies and the ideological implications of any particular ontology 
when it comes to data. And I think that kind of work is really important and useful in just understanding the implications of any decision to divide a phenomenon into structured data. Um, the, the, the more practice you get at it, at, at kind of critiquing a, a data structure, the better able you are to perform a sophisticated critique and then um, work with it in more sophisticated ways. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything in particular you'd recommend reading along those lines? Because I'm sure that librarians will be all about critical ontology. For sure. <laughs> yeah, actually it was, um, there was a recent issue of, I think it's the Journal of Cataloging and Classification on indigenous ontologies. And I found that entire issue just like really generative and thought provoking. Um, there is one particular article just on um, thinking through um, the history of attempts to um, formalize indigenous knowledge structures. Um, and I think the, the authors' names are Duarte and Velarde Lewis within that journal issue. Um, that I think just clarified a whole range of questions for me and, and raised other ones. Mm -hmm. I will look that up. Yeah, it's a great and issue. Then I, so I'm also wondering, like, once you have these sort of big picture theoretical um, critiques, how do you find that impacting the actual code that people write or the interfaces that people build? How do you represent this to people who weren't inside of that conversation? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, I think... It's, it's, a, it's a problem that we're still working on and, and that we haven't um, satisfactorily addressed yet. Um, but um, I think that um, I'm seeing more and more interest in efforts to represent those kinds of tensions and conflicts and paradoxes. I mean, there are some really smart people working in data visualization and interface design. Um, who have noticed the same things we have um, in terms of gaps between what the data can tell us and what um, we want it to tell us. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot more interest in um, visualization that, um, that encodes affect, for example, or visualizations that change depending on whose perspective you're looking at them from. Um, there's a lot of attention being paid to um, visualizing ambiguity no one's figured it out yet, but it's something that there's a lot of attention being paid to. Um, so, so I think that there is a critical mass kind of forming around these questions, but um, none of them have been really satisfactorily addressed yet. Um, yeah. And you said that, yeah. So I think that I think that one thing that we should acknowledge about um, a visualization that accomplishes this kind of work is that it may not feel satisfactory to people who look at it <laughs> like in fact, so? it probably well it probably won't because the current um repertoire of of conventions for data visualization is um to make data per perform um useful work and to be immediately legible and part mm -hmm. of what a lot of us have been trying to do is to kind of um trouble that uh, that purported relationship between data and pure knowledge. Mm 
So if a, if a visualization actually accomplishes that, then um, it's it's probably going to be unsatisfying to a lot of people. Do you have some example projects that people could look at to feel what that's like? Yeah, I mean, I think the journal Vectors is probably a good, um, you know, I, I think maybe it's a path not taken. That's, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it lately within digital humanities. Um, if, if you've spent any time looking at Vectors, which was a journal out of USC, um, you know, it, um, it produced, I don't, I don't quite know how many issues, maybe 10 issues um, that, um, that, that work with um, scholarly material in interesting and innovative ways. And um, a lot of times my students will tell me that these pieces um, feel um, unsatisfying to them or um, poorly executed because they can't navigate them with the immediacy and ease that uh, they, they, they expect. Um, but I think that that's intentional, that um, there's an insistence that the interface is part of the argument within vectors. Um, but it's just that we don't have a vocabulary yet for working with that kind of material. Mm -hmm. so to take a, uh, a right angle, um, you mentioned before a project that someone was working on with a programmer in the library. And I am interested in hearing more about how librarians are supporting digital humanities or how you think they should or can support digital humanities? Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about it and I know a lot of people have too. Um, so my sense of the situation right now for librarians, and I'm sure librarians will correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that A, librarians are overworked and overburdened just kind of in general, you know, like, um, a subject librarian is covering like five subjects um, and that's at UCLA, which is a big school. I imagine they're covering many more um, at smaller schools. Um, and, you know, um, they're being asked to report metrics in a very um, rigorous way. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the incursion of the digital hasn't really lightened people's burden particularly. And, and, um, and meanwhile, what's also happening is that, um, you know, university librarians are um, saddling them with the additional workload of digital humanities. I mean, that seems to be, from my kind of amateurish observations, that seems to be what's mostly being the case. Um, and, you know, given librarians already heavy workload, um, the addition of, of this whole new subject domain is, I think, as likely to provoke exhaustion as, as excitement, which is not to say that it, there aren't a lot of librarians who are excited about it. It's just that that relies on a lot of goodwill and extra time from librarians um, rather than, you know, um, rewards for their labor, which is what produces good work. So, um, so that's my, my first kind of observation about it. And um, 
the second is that librarians are not being um, they're, they're not being um, allocated the resources they need um, in order to work on or even provide meaningful assistance with digital humanities projects. Um, just the way that resources and labor are apportioned in the typical university library means that um, no individual librarian is able to marshal all the resources that he or she needs um, to make a project happen. Um, except in um, the best cases. So, um, so all of that, I think, um, produces some exhaustion in, you know, our best people. And then also, I think, some skepticism about, you know, the relationship between librarians and digital humanities at large. Yeah, I suspect you you will not find a lot of argument with the, uh, <laughs> the statement that that most librarians do not have the resources and the support that that they wish they did have. Um, yeah. And I I've, I keep finding that um, in terms of the resources, digital humanities tends to to be very complicated because it exists at at this very interdisciplinary place and also at this place where the uh, recognition structures for that kind of work don't necessarily exist, right? So if you're spending all of your time putting together a, a digital thing as opposed to a peer-reviewed paper, it may be no less sophisticated, but like where do you get tenure from it or what have you? And that that makes life hard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's quite like to use a disgusting turn of phrase, it's very high touch <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in the sense that, um, you know, it just anyone who's collaborating on a digital project has to be like super in the weeds and that can be really hard to justify to if you have a a boss who's looking for you to account for your time in a in a very detailed way so you know it's a problem for librarians but also for like everyone you know honestly these are questions that no one's worked out about labor yeah digital humanities i was doing a, a project for a client this morning and i got I think I'm up to my first milestone and can invoice for it. And I discovered like <laughs> to my absolute shock, the actual amount of time I've spent is pretty close to the amount of time that I estimated and therefore wow. the amount of money I bid. Cause that never happens. Like, as Good. you know, yeah, <laughs> which I can do only cause I've been doing this enough that I, I keep records and I have invoiced enough people hourly that I, I can do some estimates, but it was shocking. Because as you know, like that's not normal for digital projects. It's it's like, well, I'll make a thing which could take anywhere from like a couple of hours to several weeks. I don't know. Like totally. You don't know totally. which yaks you're gonna have to shave till you get out the razor and <laughs> for sure. Oh my god, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so so in these cases you have mentioned, these like handful of gold standard cases where libraries can do really effective digital humanities work. What does that look like? I think it looks different in different places. You know, um, I don't know that there's um, a recipe for it um, that, that would fit every institution. Um, but I think what I've noticed is that um, like one, one kind of unifying characteristic of some of these places is that um, there's sort of a cohort 
of um, librarians or people who work in libraries who um, can support each other and establish um, some camaraderie and even like a constituency, like a voting block within, you know, library politics. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is that um, people seem to benefit from being given a pretty high degree of autonomy. Um, so like trusting good people seems to be one um, unifying element of places that, that have established successful mm -hmm. library DH collaborations. Um, you know, some places have strong senior advocates and, and that um, is really helpful. I think when, when, when there's, uh, when there's someone in a position of power who can kind of shield um, more junior scholars from any kind of political blowback, um, it seems to result in a lot of activity and, and productivity. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, just as in any happy workplace, um, people need to be permitted to make mistakes and, and try things. Um, I think, you know, in, in the current climate for libraries, there's a lot of pressure on um, library administrators, I guess, to, um, to capture metrics and kind of report things um, in ways that make their funding decisions legible to university administrators. And I, I do understand like why that happens. Um, but um, the fact is that there's not always gonna be a business case for a digital humanities project. Like it, um, there, there's a little bit of confusion there about like, you know, rolling out a new OPAC, which is one kind of digital project and like, doing a digital humanities project which is a completely different beast altogether um, and won't have a business case. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think people get confused about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I find it interesting, although sadly not surprising, um, that, that when I ask, you know, what does, uh, what does library digital humanities look like? The answer that you gave is 0% technical and 100% political. Oh, that's true. <laughs> well, that may just be like, <laughs> you know, a symptom of my own neurosis rather than what's actually happening on the ground. But, you know, I, I think like some, some, some people, you know, yeah, it's really hard. I think that's another thing is like, it's really hard to find the people with the right technical skills mm -hmm. combined with the right humanities background um, combined with the right political skills to kind of pull something off like that within a library. Mm -hmm. Which presumably is, is at least part of why it tends to rely on successful cohorts. It's, yeah, it's easier to find those skills spread out across several people. than. That's right. Mind. That's right. It's so important just to have someone who you feel like has your back um, mm -hmm. and, and can, can help you get something done if you can't do it by yourself. Mm hmm. Hmm. Well, I think I do want to ask a little bit about technical things and then maybe yeah. um, 
wrap up because I know that people always ask me like what specific tools or languages or whatever should I learn, which is not necessarily the right question because often the right question does happen on like a higher abstraction level. But if there are librarians who want to build up those digital humanities technical skills, are there particular directions that are you think most likely to be fruitful? Like recognizing the digital humanities means 500 different things and then the particular pathway you take may be very different with different skills. But are there totally. particular like obvious entry points you would suggest? Okay, yes. So like you, like my first impulse is to be like, well, you know, like there are many different technologies, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I know that's not what those people want to hear. They want to hear like, what is the... The thing I should learn which is a totally reasonable thing to want so I'm just gonna like I'm just gonna tell them and then and then you can argue with me awesome uh, or someone else can argue with me if you disagree <laughs> so okay here we go I'm gonna say like if you're interested in textual editing and textual editions you should learn TEI and XSLT um, if you are interested in working with data um, i.e. like gathering data from the web and um, you know manipulating it, then you should learn either R or Python or, or both. Um, if you're interested in data visualization, either R or D3. Um, if you wanna do fancy web design, you know, HTML, CSS, and then um, maybe JavaScript or PHP. That's that's what I'm going to say. What do you think? I think that is gratifyingly. I'm, I'm writing notes so I can write them <laughs> in the show notes. But I think that is gratifyingly specific, um, <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense. Honestly, I mean they, these are yeah. <laughs> I would probably say Python too because I'm I'm partial to that. And, and my my friend uh, Tara Andrews who does textual editing is always going on about TEI. And, XSLT and so forth. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think it underscores what, what we were saying before about how useful it is to have a group because you can totally imagine the you know person doing the textual work who has this one set of skills and the person making the web thing to make it pretty and public having this totally different set of skills. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, most, you know, I guess most of us at a certain point have a tiny bit of skill in a few different areas um but uh but yeah it really does take some specialized skill if you want something that looks and feels like um the the level that we're we're used to encountering from mm -hmm. well-funded places yeah that was one of the things that took me far too long to learn just hanging out in, in the code for lib irc chat room is people talking about all these different technologies and like wait it's not that all of them know all of those things and all the things i know totally <laughs> so I, know. I know my things so they know their things <laughs> and some other people know some other things and like collectively there are all of these things that we know but uh but no one of us actually knows more than a fairly small fraction of them yeah like that's nobody's okay. like super pro at everything i know that's i had that same realization and I was like, maybe I don't need to like be a Unix administrator. Like that's okay. I'm going to let someone else like do that. Um, and that's why when people say like, what do you do when students come into your class with different technical abilities? 
I'm just like, you know, it's not as big a deal as you think it is, as people always think it is, because of course people are going to come in knowing different things, but no one is going to know everything. Like mm -hmm. literally there's no reason someone would um, necessarily be an expert in both like the intricacies of network analysis and web design. There's right. no, there's no reason they would know both. So, and if you're training you know. people for an essentially interdisciplinary field, then you can have them work together and then it's, that's one of the skills they need to have anyway. <laughs> I think it's really healthy and good to, um, to learn to be patient when someone else is learning something and to learn that it doesn't mean you're dumb when you don't know something. You know, yeah. I think that's a really valuable thing to know yeah. how to do. Yeah, it's one of the things that always strikes me teaching intro programmers is just the emotional skill of not feeling dumb for not knowing it is one of the key things that you do learn at the early oh stages. God, of yeah. And I'm still learning that. Um, you know, I was trying to do something with um, D3 this weekend, and I just cannot get the labels to show up. And I'm just like, well, I guess I wasn't meant to do this. <laughs> and you know that that's not actually the truth, right? It's like, I guess I haven't found the correct semicolon yet is the actual yeah. <laughs> thing that's going on. But no, no, but it's hard to silence that voice. Cut out for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's, hard, it's hard to know who to ask for help too without, you know, um, you know, admitting defeat or, you know, to ask for help from your colleagues can be really hard when you want to be respected. And so it's, I, yeah, I feel like I have a lot in common with my students when they're, when they're learning to do things. I still have so much stereotype thread about asking for help. Like I have to mm -hmm. force myself and I'm, I'm a lot more likely to ask for help in like women only chat rooms than yeah, in, in the, like code for lib or something where, where I love the people. But even so it's like, I still feel stereotype threat asking for help. And I still feel like I can answer questions, but I shouldn't ask them. And I know it's dumb to feel that way, but I still I know. do. I know. Right? No, I'm the same way. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah. I hate, I hate having to ask for help, but you know, for all the, googling in the world there are some things where you just need a human being to be like oh you meant this like yes. oh you meant a v lookup you know because <laughs> it's would you so know much that? faster yeah <laughs> right and sometimes you can't even figure out the terms to google unless you're talking to a person you're like well i i need to do the thing but it, it think with that and and you just like point incoherently and, and then they're like oh here is the technical term where you can stick it into google and like your question will be answered in a second but for sure you don't know the term Yes. Yeah. And like, honestly, like for, for women, maybe in particular, like I understand why Stack Overflow has a lot of emphasis on like not duplicating questions mm -hmm. and going back and looking and being a very polite kind of inquirer when it comes to questioning, but that kind of groundskeeping and, um, you know, gatekeeping and disciplinary function that a lot of the commenters perform on sites like that can be can can have a real silencing effect i think for a lot of people like i don't want to ask the wrong question and get in trouble and yeah you know be denied points or something yeah so it's hard to know where to go and there's a real art to answering those tactfully you know mm -hmm. see yeah. see this answer that has you know has already <laughs> been answered as opposed right. to like shut up and you should have read the rules already or whatever exactly which maybe yeah. everybody should i mean everybody should but it would be helpful but if you don't know what to google yeah 
there's there's more and less tactful ways to express that the, like these are the community norms and this is where you can maybe already find the answer <laughs> exactly yeah yeah some um yeah we were talking this week about the on the programming historian about um how to increase women's participation in in that i kind of saw that thread it was interesting and and i guess my my initial thought was like, it's not that women don't want to help. It's like, they're already helping in so many other ways. All of us are overcommitted yeah. and overtaxed and exhausted and volunteering for so many things. Um, mm -hmm. And I know it's probably the case. I was going to, because I was tempted to say, well, like those of us with some emotional intelligence should, you know, help out on places like Stack Overflow. And then I was like, I can't do another thing, you know, like I can't, <laughs> I can't volunteer in another forum. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the standard problems with, with trying to increase diversity of participation, right? Is like all of the underrepresented people with excellent skills are already incredibly overcommitted. Yeah, everyone's exhausted. It's a fact. <laughs> it's totally true. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, I think that that's a reason to, I was thinking about this in the context of the programming historian. It's like, well, I think this is a reason not to kind of um, solicit more volunteer work from the people whom you want to be involved, but to place them in positions of decision-making authority, mm -hmm. you know. And then, you know, in a, in a group like the programming historian, that's hard because nobody really has decision-making authority. It's a collective, mm -hmm. but it might be something like asking them into the inner circle where decisions get made rather mm -hmm. than, um, you know, asking them to volunteer more of their time to write a, an extra tutorial or something. Well, there's also just this huge question of what your community respects, right? Because if, if you need to have, you know, documentation or people hanging out in the beginner chat room or whatever to have that on ramp. But then the only thing you actually respect in your community is technical contributions. Then asking people to do that work, however necessary, is even more problematic. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, for a while, um, Allison Hagel, the other woman on the programming historian, and I were kind of relegated to outreach section of the editorial team <laughs> and uh um and after a while I was like you know what <laughs> like a we don't just do outreach and b like outreach is kind of a devalued mm -hmm. field and so um thank you thankfully like one of the other editors recognized this and, and bumped us up into the regular team but um you know nobody wants to be like just the outreach person even though that's a perfectly like we all need more of that actually. Yeah. And increasing the cultural value placed on that is really hard and takes yeah. its own kind of work. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, so much work. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note with vast piles of unfinished and undervalued work, <laughs> totally. um, I, I should probably wrap this up so we can both get to whatever two o'clocks we may have. Oh, um, yeah. But thank you very much for being on the show and, and telling thank us you. all about digital humanities. And, and it was uh, really fun. Really yeah. Fun to get to talk. Yeah. I'm glad I got to actually meet you over the interwebs. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> right. So thank you very much. My pleasure.